Hey, Crack fans. Before we get to today's show, I want to let all of you listeners know about the revolutionary work being done by our friends over at Swing Vision. Now, all of us as tennis players are constantly searching for that piece of information that's going to give us that one, two, three percent edge whenever we step onto the court. We want to know, am I hitting my forehand with enough depth? Am I accurately placing my backhands? Am I employing patterns on the court that are putting me in an optimum position to experience success? Thankfully, all of those questions can now be answered via the app produced by our friends at Swing Vision. Folks, it's extraordinarily simple. You're going to download the app. You're going to turn that app on your phone. You're going to put your phone on the back fence, the back curtain of whatever court you're playing on. You're going to hit record. And then using artificial intelligence, Swing Vision is going to break down your performance. If you click on the link that you find in the podcast description here on today's episode, you'll go right to the Swing Vision website. And of of course, friends who use our Crack Rackets promo code CRACK20 are going to get an additional $20 discount and a free 14-day pro trial on the Swing Vision app. Again, you use that promo code CRACK20, $20 discount, as well as a free 14-day pro trial. How do you find the link? To get signed up, just go back to your podcast feed. It's in the podcast description of this episode. You go to the Swing Vision website, you set up your account, you download the app, you get rocking and rolling, get all the information one location with our friends at Swing Vision. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, July 22nd. There's this common refrain that far too often goes unchallenged in the tennis world, and it's the idea that there's a lull after a major event on the calendar, whether it be a Grand Slam, a 1,000-level tournament. There's this concept that A, the week's immediately following those events matter less than other weeks on the schedule. And B, it's the idea that the best players don't particularly play those events with much frequency. Now, there is some truth to both of those ideas. That said, I think this week in particular dispels that narrative moving forward. And part of that is a byproduct of the fact that there were no points offered at the 2022 Wimbledon, that there were Russian and Belarusian players banned from the year's third Grand Slam. All of those players have a bit more urgency to play, to make up for that deficit in their points resume. Certainly the fact that many of the ranking protections that have been applied to players throughout the course of this pandemic, they're going to expire over the course of the next few months. As such, if you haven't performed over the course of the past 18, 24, 32 months, whatever it may be, your ranking is about to suffer. And certainly you want to make the most of your ranking being as high as you can while you can, if you're a top player, play as many events as you can. At the same time, so much for a dull week on the ATP and WTA Tour. Each four of our tour-level events this week continue to deliver the goods, and I do think this is one of those weeks that dispel the narrative that it's only the slams, only the 1,000-level events that provide exciting tennis. Certainly those events are perhaps the 
most exciting. I mean, not perhaps. They are the most exciting events on the calendar. But in particular, if you look on the ATP side this week, I could argue that we have eight of the best 25 clay court players in the world all still alive at this week's 500 and 250 level events. Certainly in Hamburg, Carlos Alcaraz has been as good as any player in the world not named Djokovic or Nadal on a clay court this season. Francisco Sarundolo won the title in Bostad last week. He knocks off Rublev and Karatsev this week in uh, Hamburg. I think he not only is he a top 30 player in the world, you know, makes the semifinals in Miami, but so much of his success throughout his career, whether at the challenger level, certainly uh, these past two weeks on the clay courts. I think he's made a pretty solid case that he's one of the 25 best clay quarters in the world. We can get into lefty Alex Molchan, who has been killing it on the ATP Challenger Tour on clay and has worked his way into the top 50 in the world, primarily based on a clay court-centric schedule. Lorenzo Musetti, the 20-year-old Italian, broke in to the ATP Tour. His major breakthrough result, 2020, when he beats Nishikori and of Wawrinka, I believe it was at the Rome Masters. I think he's now like 17 or 18 and 6 on the year on clay courts. And again, that's just half the battle. In those four names, I didn't include Kasparut, who's still alive in Stad, and Matteo Bertini, still alive in Stad, and Albert Ramos Vinolas, who has made 12 quarterfinals at the ATP level on clay court since the start of just the 2021 season. Dominic Team, a multi time French Open finalist. Those are your eight guys still alive this week in our two ATP Tour clay court events. That is a loaded field. It'll provide plenty of tennis to satisfy all of us on another championship weekend on the ATP and WTA Tours. Of course, I didn't mention the fact that our WTA Tour final in Hamburg thoroughly exciting. Annette Conteve seems to finally have regained her form played excellent tennis today against 21-year-old Anastasia Potapova, who I have a lot of thoughts on that I want to share on today's show because I had the chance to broadcast that Conteve potapova match as part of T2's coverage. And now that my first week at T2 is done, I apologize if you'll indulge me, listeners. I doubt any of these people are listening to this show, but have to give a couple of massive thank yous and shout outs. First of all, to Michael Haston, who invited me out to do this for T2, super producer for many things at Tennis Channel. He took a shot on me. He believed in me, provided me a fantastic week. Shout out to him. I hope I made him proud on the call this week. Have to give a massive shout out to my friend Gil Gross, who of course is a returning champion and has hosted this podcast from time to time. He tolerated so much of my nonsense throughout the course of the weekend. You know, Gil is three years my younger, I believe. And yet not only do I see him as a peer, I see him as someone somewhat of a mentor for me in this endeavor because he is someone who went the traditional route, went to journalism school, has planned on doing this entire life, you know, his entire life. This was a bit of a pivot for me around, you know, 21, 22 years old. And so to be able to pick his brain, turn to him for advice, again, to be able to work with him as I did all week, the thrill of a lifetime. He is a near and dear friend. I'm immensely grateful uh, for his advice and guidance over the course of this week. And then everyone, Ben, Griffin, Suze, us. Susan, excuse me, Wes, the entire team that was tolerating all of my nonsense throughout the week. Shout out to them. Very much looking forward to week two next week. You can follow all of that coverage on T2. It's essentially our cross-court coverage that we do for college tennis, but for the professional world and to have the opportunity to jump between matches and 
track third set tiebreakers, track the best matches at any given moment. Uh, It's the sort of product that, as a tennis fan, I was always looking for, and I'm telling you, if you haven't already, tune in to T2. It's an NFL red zone type idea. Again, our cross-court coverage is what we call it here at Cracked Rackets. Give it that tennis branding. Uh, It's been delightful. And so if you haven't already, it would mean the world to me if you did tune in. And again, a massive thank you to all of you who have reached out with congratulations. That said, enough self-indulgence. Again, having had the opportunity to call just about every match today in Stad, just about the majority of the matches in Hamburg, or at least got to watch them all on the monitor throughout. I have many a thoughts on today's ATP WTA battles. I got to call a couple of the matches in Palermo as well, so I want to get to those briefly at the end. But my job on today's episode is to prepare all of you for another championship weekend on the ATP and WTA tours. Of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out is because of the support we've gotten from all of you listeners. A massive thank you to all of you for your continued support. We're immensely grateful that you continue to listen, even if you hit the skip 30-second button every time you hear me go into this spiel. A massive shout-out to all of our Patreon subscribers as well who have been supporting us from the beginning. And speaking of support from the beginning, shout-out to our friends at Tennis Point. We knew them when they were Midwest Sports. They knew us when we were just this ragtag group of three kids who wanted to do some stuff in tennis. And they were like, sure, we'll give you a shot. And obviously now Midwest Sports has become Tennis Point, and Tennis Point serves tennis players everywhere by providing the best equipment at the best prices. You can find it all. Tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15. 15% off all sale items. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into it. Here's Friday's action from across the ATP and WTA tennis world. And again, so much for a dull week. Was a delightful day of tennis across the ATP tour. I want to start with the action in Hamburg. It was our highest level event of the week in ATP 500. As such, you see, you know, world number, what, six, Carlos Alcaraz as your top seed in the field. And look, Alcaraz played very, very poorly through his first two matches. So poorly that I believe I had this conversation yesterday on this show. I had this conversation with Nate Walrath as well. I've been kicking the thought around with Gil Gross's what does Carlos Alcaraz's B-plus performance even look like? And I know I did. I'm not so sleep-deprived that I don't remember I did this exact rant yesterday. Don't worry, folks. I'm not going to completely repeat myself. It's the idea that we've either seen the A-plus version of Carlos Alcaraz or we've seen the C-minus version. You know, against Alex Virov in those Roland Garros quarterfinals, he was very, very bad. Against Nicola Kuhn in round one here in Hamburg. He was not good. Through the first set uh, against Filip Krajinovic until he was down set points at 5-4 in the first set, he was not good in that match. And yet he found ways to win. And even if his C- minus isn't a B, B-plus yet, and he needs to get a bad performance into the B range so that he can survive a bad performance against a player, not a Krajinovic or a Kuhn, but you know against a Hachinov or a Greek Spore, a Demonauer, whomever it may be moving forward, that just next caliber of player who will capitalize on a C- minus as opposed to a B- minus or a B. That said, he found ways to win in his first two matches, even when he didn't play particularly well. And the way he did that was just by playing high percentage tennis, landing first serves, playing plus one tennis, sticking to his guns, continuing to swing through any errors that he may have produced. Well, all of that paid dividends today as he beat Karen Hatchnov 6-love, 6-2 in an hour nine minutes that honestly, you know, hour nine is too long 
for how the match really went. You look for Alcaraz. He just dominated Hachinov across all facets of the game. Hachinov 2 of 14 on second serve points. If Alcaraz got a first forehand, he just hit it so high and heavy and deep in the court, either A, at the feet of Karen Hachinov to where that body uh, ball would jam his body, or B, high and heavy to the backhand. And while Hachinov has strength, out of that backhand wing, you know, now he's trapped in the backhand corner. Now Carlos Alcaraz has him fully on the run. And Hatchinov's, I would say, worst shot in his arsenal is that on the run forehand because that backhand is so big. And I feel like the majority of his shanked errors come on that on the run forehand. And Alcaraz just kept going after it time after time after time. And look, it got to the point where Hatchinov was rolling in for serves and just, you know, again, making sure he didn't have to play the second, going after every plus one forehand he could. He made 71% of his first serves. If I said yesterday Hatchinov was going to make 71% of his first serves, I would have thought the match was going to be competitive. And if you listen to yesterday's podcast, you know I did think this match was going to be competitive because I like the Hatchinov backhand. I like his size against the heaviness of that Alcaraz ball. I like the fact that I thought his first serve could be a weapon, even against the number two returner on the ATP Tour right now in Carlos Alcaraz, who, again, has a higher break percentage this season than Rafael Nadal does have a career average. Now it's one year, but 19 years old and you're flirting with Rafa and Djokovic levels as a returner. Just ridiculous. A testament to the talent that is Carlos Alcaraz. And today it was all clicking. The drop shots, the plus one backhand down the line to keep Hatchinov honest. He just didn't miss very often. Again, he dominated Hatchinov. And even in the two games Hatchinov was able to uh, hold serve, like they were struggles. You know, he had to fight off 11 break points throughout the course of the match. He was only able to fight off six of them. He only earned one break point chance for himself and a big first serve helped Elkaraz erase uh, that early break chance. Elkaraz woke up and reminded all of us why he was tier one or tier one and a half right alongside of Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal as favorites entering the 2022 French Open. I mean, the heaviness of his ball to deal with that on a surface where you don't have traction with your feet. You know, again, he paralyzes you because if he goes inside out, you're in trouble to deal with the depth of that shot. If he goes in inside in, you're in trouble because he's probably, you're going to have to track down that shot. Of course, you're always paralyzed as well because you never know when he's going to mix in the drop shot. It was just a stark reminder of why we like to joke around here. And I made this joke on T2 and I didn't get yelled at, which is a good news. Uh, you know, Carlos Alcaraz may not be the greatest of all time, but he certainly isn't eliminated from the GOAT conversation yet. And again, all but like seven humans have not been eliminated from that GOAT discussion. Certainly the 99.92% of professional players or players in general are eliminated from the GOAT conversation by the time they're 19 years old. He's not. That's how special he can look on a day like this where, again, 0-2 against Karen Hatchinoff. And I did the whole Hatchinoff thing yesterday, 17-3 and against opponents ranked outside the top 50, now 6-14 and against top 50 opponents this year. He hasn't made a—he's made one final, excuse me, since winning that Paris Masters title in 2018. I just don't get it. How does a guy that size, with that serve, that forehand as a weapon, that solid physically, how does he ever lose a match 0-2? I don't care how good Alcaraz is. It's just like, for a guy who can do a lot of different things, he can really only do one thing. And that's why he's so confounding and fascinating and why I'm locked in on Karen Hatchinoff. We're going to do a Hatchinoff podcast at some point. With that said, uh, again... 
He didn't get to call that match. That was on the Mothership Tennis Channel, of course. Didn't get to call Alex Mulchan either. Mulchan served for the first set, up 5-4. George, or had, excuse me, a breakpoint setpoint chance with George serving at 4-5 in the first. George then was up 15-40. Had opportunities to break Mulchan and serve for the first set. Ultimately, neither guy able to close out the first. It goes to a breaker where Mulchan just... Again, he's Hugo Gaston without all the noise. Like, he's just the more solid version of Mulchan, uh, of Gaston, is the 24-year-old Mulchan, who is at a career high in the rankings right now. You look for Alex Mulchan, entered the week, uh, excuse me, entered the week at 48 with his semifinal at a new career high in the live rankings of 37. Um, look, for Mulchan, he's been spectacular uh, on clay courts throughout the course of this year and throughout the course uh, of his career. You look for him, he's made four different challenger finals, three of the four are on clay. He's made two ATP finals, 250 finals this season, both of them on the clay courts of Marrakesh and Lyon. Now, this was his first ATP 500 level quarter final, but listen to his wins this week. You know, three sets, seven, six, and third over Carreño Busta. Seven, six, first set, he takes over Chorch before, unfortunately, Chorch forced to retire with injury. It was a quad issue. It didn't, it, again, it was a really physical match. It didn't look like it was structural damage. Now, you always hesitate to speculate on a Borna Chorch injury because of how banged up he has been, but he's also played a healthy amount of, you know, he played a healthy amount of tennis this week, reaching his first quarterfinal since 2021. That said, again, the lefty Mulchan just moves the ball so well around the court, hits his spots extraordinarily well as a server, can play the drop shot, can go down the line off both wings, has a really fun leaping backhand on this surface, is so fluid on the clay. Not going to overwhelm you with any one thing that he does. You know, his definitive, his biggest weapon is his speed and his variety and just how he throws different looks at you. But he plays bigger than you think. And the harder you hit the ball at him, the harder it's going to come back. He's very much a counterpuncher, but exceptional at counterpunching. And again, 24 years old, top 50 in the world. You look for Mulchan in his career in terms of tour level matches, Mulchan uh, now overall 31 and 21 in his career, 10 and 12 on hard courts, 18 and 6 on the clay courts. He's now, again, you look for him in his career. Here are his career results. This is ridiculous. These are his career clay court results Belgrade final, Hamburg round of 16, Marrakesh final. Munich round of 16, Lyon final, Roland Garros round of 64, Hamburg semifinals. 18 and 6 in his career at the ATP level on clay. And listen to the wins. Hachinov, Karenio Busta, Demonauer, and, you know, Botik Vandesenskulp, FAA, Del Bonis. Those are real wins. Uh, he's a factor. He's a top 25 guy on clay. He's a, the definition. He's not even going to be a dark horse. Well, actually, he will be a dark horse because not enough people are going to know about him. That's your 2023 French Open dark horse. Just put him on the list because everyone's going to know about Baez and Sarundalo. They're no longer dark horses. Mulchan still is because only us hardcore fans you know, here at Cracked Rackets really know about the lefty and Love the tattoos. Just love the the vibe he gives off on court. It's a fun energy player. The creativity is a fun contrast with how the counter with the counter punching and athleticism combination that he has against just about any opponent. Big victory for him to advance again to his first 500 level semifinal, where now he's got to face Alcaraz. That's lefty versus Alcaraz. Always like that sort of matchup. Not for the just again like to see Alcaraz tested. Of course, Alcaraz still has the biggest weapons. How is Mulchan going to hurt him? Certainly with his consistency variety but 
how does he overwhelm Alcaraz? That's the question. It's going to be a fun match. Just lock it to that semifinal. Of course, bottom half of the draw, Lorenzo Musetti into the semifinals, his first ATP semifinal of the season. He's been damn good on the clay this year. The 20-year-old Italian, 18-6 and six overall. He played three matches at every event, at all but two clay court events this year. You know, quarterfinals in Marrakesh before a loss to Laszlo Jur, who just has his number. Uh, I think he's 5-1 and one or 4-1 and one in their five career matchups. I forget what Gil told me on the broadcast. But quarterfinals Marrakesh, round of 16 Monte Carlo, beats Felix, knocked out by Schwartzman in three. Round of 16 Barcelona, beats Baez, knocked out by Schwartzman in straights. Comes through qualifying round of 16 Madrid, beats Corda, beats Ivashka, knocked out by Alex Zverev. First round loss to Tsitsipas certainly hurt at Roland Garros, particularly that he was up two sets to love, but he was injured in Madrid. And for him to come back and be that strong in his opening performance, again, very well could have won that match. You know, wins the four lead challenger. Another first round loss to Laszlo Jure. Uh, first round in Bustad last week, but semifinals this week. Beats the deuce. Rough first match, but has gotten better and better. And today just wore Davidovich Fokina down in a 6-4, 6-3 victory. Davidovich Fokina couldn't hurt him. There was nothing Davidovich Fokina could do. Not inside in forehands, not, you know, very rarely moving forward because of how fluid Musetti is in the outer thirds of the court. And, you know, outside of Musetti goes up uh, 6-4-4-1 in that second set. Davidovich Fokina played two really good games at 2-4 and 3-4 in the second and started being, you know, being much more patient, waiting 10, you know, five shots instead of three shots to pull the trigger on the inside in forehand, moved in really well behind it. I think in that two game swing, he won four different points at the net. Again, he won eight total points in those two games. Four of them came at the net. He was managed to get Musetti stretched well enough. He came up this ridiculous lob that he tracked, you know, Musetti drop shots him. Davidovich Fokina traps it down. Musetti then lobs Davidovich Fokina. Davidovich Fokina responds with a lob over the head of of Musetti. But outside of that, Davidovich Fokina, I think he had 21 errors on the forehand side alone and just couldn't generate the pace to hurt Musetti, could not put points away. Musetti was so fluid with his backhand. I'm sure some of you have already seen some of the clips floating around tennis Twitter as well, where Musetti hit the tweener, you know, lob uh, casually early on in the first set. And just, you know, again, Musetti went to work in this match. And you look now for Lorenzo Musetti, who's 23 and 14. In his last 52 weeks uh, at the ATP, uh, excuse me, not 23 and 14, Lorenzo Musetti now 30 and 30 in his last 52 weeks overall. But again, 18 and 6 on the clay courts this year. He has established himself as one of those guys. And when your last six losses are Jur, Zverev, Tsitsipas, and Schwartzman twice, like, no shame in those losses. Good run for Musetti in Hamburg right when he needs it, uh, coming off of a four-match losing streak in Stuttgart, Queens Club, Wimbledon, and Bostad. You know, with his semifinal run this week at the 500, he's back into the top 50. Uh, Excuse me, he's into the top 50 for the first time in his career. Reached number 51 earlier this season, but now firmly inside the top 50. That's massive because now he gets into the main draw of Cincinnati, of Canada, very likely, without having to have to play qualifying. That's the ball game. You got to get into the big events. Yeah, you know, I started this podcast by saying it's not just the big events that matter, but to get into the big events uh, is half the ball game because to be the best in the world, certainly you have to win the big events, and Musetti has given himself an opportunity to do just that. And look, he's got a one and a uh, one and 
1-0 career, there's just the words, head-to-head advantage over his opponent tomorrow, Francisco Sarundolo. Sarundolo, the 23 Argentinian, uh, 23-year-old Argentinian, up to a new career high 24 in the live rankings. He's currently 18th in the points race. He's won seven matches in a row. And today, you know, down a break in the third set, Aslan Karatsev serving for the match. Sarundolo ultimately breaks him. And ultimately for Francisco Sarundolo, 6-3-4-6-7-6. He overcomes a break deficit. He was down a break 4-3. He breaks for 4-all. Gets broken for 4-5. Breaks back for 5-all. Holds for 6-5. Karatsev holding for 6-all. But... Again, it's just the confidence Sarundolo plays with. And Sarundolo, who averaged 51% of his first serves for the course of the match, made 51% of his first serves, excuse me, he, you know, somehow, ridiculously, actually, I shouldn't say ridiculously, somehow, in the clutch fashion he's continued to deliver over the past few weeks, he takes it 7-6, you know, he makes makes all but one first serve in that final set tiebreaker and takes it 7-4 and just the backhand out of the corner, the fluidity, his forehand is an absolute weapon. We've talked enough about Sarundalo this week, but again, the, the comparison I made on Twitter, the comparison I would make on this podcast now, at this time last year, Kasparud wins Bostad, wins Gestad, wins Kitzbühel the third week as well, becomes one of just five players to win three consecutive weeks on the ATP Tour, I believe this century. You know, this feels a little Kasparudish out of Francisco Sarundolo. He wins last week. Three-set win today, surviving against Karatsev, just finding a way to win, even when, again, he's making 51% of his first serves for the match. You know, I forget who sings the song, but to quote that artist, he's feeling himself. He's feeling himself. I don't know how else to say it. And look, his forehand is the biggest weapon on the court against Lorenzo Musetti. And Musetti, who was in straight-up grinder mode against Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, just was elevating balls, complete counterpunch, you know, move forward a little bit, but only when was absolutely necessary. You know, that's going to be, if you're hesitant against Francisco Sarundolo with how confidently he's hitting his forehand, you're just in trouble. So, you know, it's going to be fascinating to see that forehand, the heaviness of it into the one-handed backhand of Musetti, into the forehand, perhaps, of Musetti even more particularly. Also, Musetti, who doesn't ever hit the biggest serve, you know, Sarundolo right now fourth amongst top 50 ATP players in break percentage. He breaks over 30% of the time across surfaces. Sarundolo is in better form. Musetti's got fresher legs. Either way, Alcaraz, Mulchan, Musetti, Sarundolo. It's an awesome week uh, over in Hamburg. Going to be a fun championship weekend. But again, you could argue Stad is better than Hamburg if you look at the semi, uh, the semifinal matches we've got on hand tomorrow. I mean, again, has anyone been more consistent than the lefty, Albert ramos Vinoles, who aptly found a T-serve today, you know, found the slice, or excuse me, found a a, a ad side T-serve and was able to, you know, target that Nicolas Jari who played amazing. Oh my God, the 26-year-old Nicolas Jari, I forgot, you know, who unfortunately missed like the entire end of 2019 full 2020 season out with an inadvertent substance positive PED test, um, or at least that was the story. You know, he is back, makes his first quarterfinal since Bostad, I think in 20, or Bostad, excuse me, in 2018 or 19, uh, first since 2019, excuse me, by making the quarters this week. His serve is massive. His forehand is massive. He is massive. 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, and just the fluidity of that serve, of that forehand, how easy it is for him to hit the backhand. I was so freaking impressed with Nicolas Jari today. And yet, 
Ramos Vanola's found a way to keep pace. He fought off, what it was it, like 13 of the 14 breakpoints he faced throughout the course of the match. Did it with clutch serving down the tee on the ad side to the bigger swinging Nicholas Jerry forehand, which would then subsequently produce errors. Or, you know, again, just the ability to spread the cord and, you know, not being deterred by, the, you know, this was a 7-6, 4-6, 7-6 win for Albert Ramos Vanola's. You know, Nicolas Jari did not get broken throughout the course of the, excuse me, was broken once throughout the course of this match. It came in the third set. There was one break for Nicolas Jari, who hit 21 aces, made 64% of his first serve throughout the first two sets, which Gil Gross and I were on the call for. I think it was four games consecutively where Albert Ramos Vanola swung the racket six total times in each of the games. Can you imagine how frustrating it would be to only get to swing the racket six times in the course of four different games where you're just like, all right, what am I doing out here? Like, who is this fun for? Who's enjoying this? And I get he's a professional. He's not out there to have fun. He's out there to make money. That's why he won the freaking match. But can you imagine, though, mental stamina, wherewithal it requires to stay focused and execute with precision against the power tennis of Nicolas Jari? I was so impressed with ARV, who's, again, made 12 clay court quarterfinals since the start of 2021, now into another semifinal with his victory as well. Look, the lefty's just a tough out, and he'll pepper that Casper Ruud backhand tomorrow, much like Rafael Nadal attempted to do in their uh, attempted to do, succeeded in doing, excuse me, in their French Open final. But obviously, Casper Ruud, uh, I mean, Albert Ramos Vanolas is not Rafael Nadal. And you look for Ruud, who today, 7 6 7 6 victory over Hami Munar. He lost the first serve at the end of this of the match and you know final first serve percentage was 58.3 he was making like 30 percent of his first serves down the home stretch and look he he's up four three up a set and a break gets broken for four all you know Munar holds for five four Kasparu double faults a couple times like makes one first serve and yet still manages to find a way to hold for five all still manages to find a way to hold for six all and then you know again you look for Kasparu clean things up in the breaker and Munar played a loose breaker, missed a couple of returns. And, you know, again, Rude made him pay with some on the run magic and did a really good job of attacking the Jaume Munar forehand because Munar's forehand will sit shorter in the court. And Rude just dominated those forehand to forehand exchanges. He moved extraordinarily well. I actually thought he showed his own slice down the T serve on the ad side that I just. Don't remember him executing that well against Nadal uh, in the French Open final. And, you know, again, his kick serve can also get above the shoulder of a player of Munar's stature pretty freaking easily, even as a second serve. So, you know, when he hits that kick serve, it's a guarantee he's going to get a plus one forehand. And he just he measures himself so well on these clay courts. But again, six and six. That's what it took to beat Munar, who has just been outstanding this year. He's now, you look overall, 36 and 18 overall on the year. He's 26 and 11, winning 70% of his matches on clay courts. He's got multiple uh, challenger titles this season on the clay courts. Now the quarterfinal in Stad, as well as the round of 16 in Barcelona. He qualified in Monte Carlo. He won a round at Roland Garros before a tough three-set loss, uh, excuse me, five-set loss to Diego Schwartzman, where he was up two sets to love in that match. He's just He's played really good tennis this year and clearly 25 years old. He's hit another plane physically than he was at earlier in his career. And he's always been a good mover, but just there's a little more pace, a little more depth. He did a really good job of, you know, when Casper would cheat over on the ad side, 
his short angle forehand was the perfect counter to that because it's just a tough ball to to, to track down. And, you know, if you are going to track down a short angle cross-court forehand, now that entire backhand corner was open for Munar to attack. And look, Munar is comfortable moving forward. He's actually a pretty good serving volleyer. Of course, he's had to finish points at the net because he doesn't have the massive ground strokes that some of his peers possess. But a really well-rounded game, just Rude had the bigger weapons in the breakers down the home stretch, was able to win a couple of more free points. But look, Albert Ramos-Vanolas is 4-2 in his career against Casper Rude. Again, that's a fun matchup between the two. Now, the last time they played Wimbledon, Rude beat him in straight sets. They also played Santiago in 2020 on the clay. Rude beat him there uh, in straight sets. Ramos won the first four matches that they played, but all of them were before the 2020 season. Rude's won the last two that the guys have played, and I just do think it's a different Casper Ruud than it was in 2019. Ruud's the heavy favorite, uh, but look, Ramos never rolls over on a clay court, so don't expect him to tomorrow. And then on the other half, uh, obviously you've got Dominic Team and Matteo Berrettini. It's going to be their sixth career head-to-head. Berrettini, the 3-2 advantage. Look, Team was exceptional today against Juan Pablo Varias, a 6-4, 6-3 victory. The simplest thing to say is that he just looked like Dominic Team. He finally seemed to have his legs under him. The erratic errors just so much more infrequently uh, seen today than they were early on. And look, Juan Pablo Varias can drive that backhand cross court and is able to pressure Team and take advantage of his court positioning. Juan Pablo Varias, a pretty decent volleyer himself, and mixes in the drop shots, mixes in the angles, but... He didn't get into any of his plays because team just powered him off the court. And you look for Dominic team again from a serving perspective. He just cleaned things up, made 62% of his first serves, won 78% of his first serve points. Second serve was a struggle, as it will be for any player making a comeback. The footwork when you're under blitz on a return is the like one of the last footwork pieces to come back because it's just hard to mimic that timing, mimic the pressure you feel on the serve of a match in practice. You know, there were still some little things footwork-wise. And again, if the second serve is the struggle, that means things are on the right track. That was the only struggle for Dominic Team, who, you know, overall won 56% of his second serve return points, but 40% of his first serve return points and created 12 break chances for himself, converted on five of them, protected his serve well enough that that was good enough to get the job done in straight sets. And what was most impressive is how he got over the finish line because there were multiple deuce games uh I think at, what was it, 2-3 and maybe 3-4, or 2-3 and, what was that second set score? Yeah, uh, no, 2-3 and 5-3, where, you know, team could have gone away, or team could have given Varias an insurance hold and just kept it at one break, but he didn't. He expanded the deficit to a two-break deficit for Varias. His backhand down the line went winner on match point was simply stunning and it was a vintage team performance and now he's going to take on a guy in Matteo Berrettini who I don't know how Berrettini won today that was highway robbery from the number two seed here in Gestad and you know again Pedro Martinez was up 6-3 6-all 5-1 in that second set breaker 5-1 he loses six straight points never recovered. 6-1 third set for Berrettini, who continued to fight. And I will say, down 5-2 in the breaker, connected on two very impressive second serve returns, got good depth on them, came up with a really impressive, you know, track down a drop shot, forehand cross-court approach shot winner that under pressure is an easy ball to send long. He didn't. He landed it to a good target, but it was a choke job. 
from Pedro Martinez. And I try not to use that word ever, but no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He just got so tentative in up 5-1 and, you know, shanked a couple of backhands that were left short that ultimately gave Berrettini easy forehands to attack and just, you know, wasn't able to find a first serve. And, you know, once he went down early in that third set, you could just see Berrettini was going to run away with it. And so, again, Berrettini has not played his best this week. He's been fine. He was pretty good against Gasquet. I actually thought today was a step backwards for him. And yet, now he's won 11 consecutive matches going into this matchup against Dominic Team. And if we want to know, is Dominic Team back? I mean, how does he handle the elite first serve plus one forehand of Matteo Berrettini? How does he limit opportunities for Berrettini to play those balls? That's the question on all of our minds. Again, Ramos Vanola is a 4-2 head-to-head advantage over Casper Rude, but Tennis Abstract has Rude as the 80.5% favorite tomorrow. They have Berrettini as an 81.8% favorite tomorrow. And again, he's got a 3-2 head-to-head advantage against Dominic Team. With that said, that is your ATP action heading into championship weekend. We switch years now and talk about the WTA side of the equation. I apologize. I think I'm going to go a little bit shorter on the WTA here, but let's start with Annette Conteve Potapova. Holy crap. Was this match exceptional? Our 43 minutes of just elite physicality. And it was an indoor clay court. And I keep saying this. I love indoor clay because you have the physicality of a clay court, but the ability to finish points of indoor tennis. And so it maximizes and rewards players who are willing to move forward, willing to spread the court, but be aggressive with their ground strokes. You can actually finish points indoors in a way that's even tougher when you're playing on outdoor clay courts. But it was damn near impossible for either of these players to finish points in today's match. And credit to 21-year-old Anastasia Potapova, who was out for about a year after suffering a pretty tough ankle injury, had ankle surgery. She is so, I'm going to swear again, fluid uh, in the outer thirds of the court. It's just like her ability to absorb the cross-court blow that Annette Conteve threw at her. And Annette Conteve spread the court so well today. Corner to corner to corner to corner. Conte- uh, Potapova tracked it down. And her on-the-slide lob, loopy, neutralizing forehand that lands six, you know, about a foot inside the baseline, it's just measured perfectly. And it's impossible to for any opponent to take early on the rise as a ground stroke. Now, all the credit in the world needs to go to Annette Conteve, who recognized that, identified it, and said, okay, we're indoors. My adjustment, and my adjustment always, is to take that ball rather than let it bounce and take it on the rise, which she still did at times with success. I'm going to take it as a swinging volley. And according to my calculations, you know, Conteve hit 17 swinging volleys that may not have been direct winners, but led to her winning the point. That was the number I had on my stat pad. And just, it was a brilliant adjustment from Conteve, who finally looked like herself and is back into a final for the first time since the end of February and just, again, was moving so well. And, you know, Conteve served for this match three different times. She was up 5-2 in the second, you know, 6-3, 5-2, and just, you know, seemed to have weathered the Potapova storm, seemed to have broken the the will of Potapova, who had a lot of will, a lot of fight in this match. Again, Potapova's backhand special 
when she turns into the forehand, it can be impressive. She's more comfortable hitting that ball down the line than cross court. But you know, I there's still you know the the Potapova forehand is not a glaring weakness. She hits her spots well on serve. It's not overwhelming power. She's just. Potapova is really, really solid, rock solid moving forward. I'm buying a lot of stock in the 21-year-old. Not that she's going to necessarily be a top 10 player, but that she's going to be top 50 for the majority of the next decade. Um, but Conteve adjusted so well. And again, even to go 5-2 in the second set and you know see that 5-2 lead dissipate, and all of a sudden it's 5-all, well, guess what? Then Conteve breaks right back, 4-6-5, and serves it out at 7-5, and just kept swinging freely, was moving so well, didn't allow herself to get flustered, just was relentless, and looked like the player she was at the end of last season, and just, you know, again, physically seemed back, seemed comfortable sliding in and out of corners, taking balls early on the rise. It was funny. There was this point at 3-5 in the second set. It was like a 30-ball rally. Both players, hands on hips, on knees, like slouched over, looked dead, and yet bounced back and just kept doing it point after point after point. This was my favorite match of the day, and it was outstanding. And again, buying all the stock in Annette Cont- uh, in Potapova, but we've been stockholders in Conteve for a while. And obviously, you know, it had a Bitcoin-like rise at the end of last season. So we got out. We sold on the rise, not sold on the dip uh, because you buy the dip, you sell on the rise. And so, you know, we our position on Conteve paid us well. We've been coasting off of it for a while, but, you know, it certainly took a, a tumble over these past few months. And it's just nice to see her playing her best tennis before she gets to the part of cal- the calendar where she has to play her best tennis, given how many points she accumulated at the end of the last year. That said, you know, third semifinal for Potapova this season. She's made seven in her career now at the tour level. 21-year-old's back and into the top 50 for the first time in her career. I'm not sure when the next time she's going to drop out of it will be. Of course, for Conteve, she takes on the hottest player on the WTA Tour. It's Bernie Pete, Bernardo Pera. Just grinds down. Uh, Martina Zinevska or Marina Zinevska. Martina? Marina? I apologize. I'm blanking on Zinevska's first game. Marina Zinevska, 6-2, 6-4 win for the 27-year-old American. Zinevska just couldn't hurt Bernie P. And... Bernie P swinging so confidently, lefty moves the ball around the court so well. I mean, Conteve's backhand's uniquely suited to face a Bernardo Pera, but Pera's right. She's just on a heater, and like she's not even dropping sets. She's just cruising. It's so impressive to watch. And with Palermo's run back to, you know, or excuse me, with her run of back-to-back uh, finals, she's back up to number 60 in the world. And she's now, after falling outside of the top 100 for the first time in three years, she's one spot away from her career high in the live ranking. She's 60. Her career high is 59. Title tomorrow, she's up to 54 in the rankings, which would be a career high. This sport, this freaking sport, it's going to be fun to watch Conteve versus Para. Of course, you look at the career head-to-head between the two of them. Conteve and Para have played once. It was a Conteve uh, victory, ultimately, in that one matchup. So again, looking forward. Maybe it wasn't a victory. Maybe this is their... No, no, no. It was a Conteve victory. Excuse me. So again, second career head-to-head here between the two of them. Of course, that's your action over in Hamburg. Some of the action still ongoing in Palermo, but you look at what unfold, or at least what I was able to see uh, through the day's events in Palermo. Had the chance to watch Sarah Cerebez Tormo just break down uh, on a Bondar. Uh, Bondar, excuse me, who ultimately has had a great season, a breakout season at the WTA Tour level. Her forehand, as Gil Gross aptly put, is a bazooka. Uh, but 
she just couldn't handle the contrast and the death by a thousand paper cuts that is Sarah Cerebez Tormo. And Cerebez Tormo's own five and quarterfinals this year. She's into her first semifinal of the season. She kind of needed it. You look for Cerebez Tormo, currently uh, 41 in the live rankings. That said, you look in the points race, actually 41 identical now in the points race, but obviously was outside of that top 40 prior to this week's semifinal run. Gets a big set of wins heading into the summer because again, 41 in the world, you're getting into Cincinnati. You're getting into Canada and you're just, you're on the dance floor. Now, what she does with that opportunity remains to be seen. And it's going to be a fascinating matchup between her and Arena Bagu. And I believe Bagu was in her first quarterfinal in two years, uh, at least on clay courts. But Obviously, Bagu had a massive uh, run at the French Open, making the round of 16. I referred to Bagu today as Diet Carolina Pliskova. A little bit of a better mover, but a little bit softer on the serve. Both have massive ground strokes, and both are so condensed off both wings. Both don't bend their knees that much, but take the ball early on the rise on the short hop. It's really impressive to see. Uh, Bagu's a better mover than Pliskova again, but... I mean, Bagu just was so relentless in attacking the Diane Perry backhand and didn't do it in the way Putin Seva did with countless moon balls, just did it with depth and aggression and then wasn't afraid to attack the open court as well if Perry was cheating over on that ad side. Perry was actually up 3-2 in that second set up a break, but loses the last four games of the set and credit to Bagu who was just relentless. So Bagu, Cerebez Tormo is going to be semifinal number one. Of course, other half of the draw, Paulini, Parizas, Diaz, currently 2-1 Paulini in the third. As of me recording this, Bronzetti has yet to play Caroline Garcia. Uh, Again, Garcia looking more and more like the former top 10 player she was in 2018. But with all of that said, again, so much for a dull week on the ATP and WTA Tour. Plenty of excitement for us to enjoy, of course. Hopefully, we'll be back this weekend to talk about all of the championship action. I won't lie. I've got a big date with my pillow is I am going to sleep for long enough that I grow another half inch. I suppose that's how I'll describe it after a long but delightful week here doing all things for T2. Again, a massive thank you to all the people who helped make that possible. A shout out as always, by the way, to super producer Daniel Westoff for the <laughs> of an editing job he does day in, day out. And, you know, again, I've been texting him at strange hours saying, hey, Pods here, pods there, and all he does is deliver the goods. So shout out to super producer Daniel Westoff, the best in the business. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 with all of that said for our fantastic super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all hopefully tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.